My name's Jerry, good to be here with you, one of the pastors, and uh, man, we're excited about what God's got in store for us here this morning. Our text is going to be Luke chapter 15. Your copy of scriptures, encourage you to turn there, Luke 15. While you're turning there, I just want to share something with you a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, I believe, I was speaking on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Many of you were probably here for that, and I shared a story about our staff and how on that one day when it was snowy and it was icy and we had two separate staff members that had the opportunity to help out someone that had slid off the road into a ditch. One stopped, one did not. You remember that tale of goodness. As we were piecing things together amongst the staff, I've got a confession to make. It was brought to my attention that yours truly also was on that very same route that passed by said person in the ditch and didn't even realize that somebody had fallen into the ditch. So let's add a a whole new dimension to that story, which is the third person that was not even aware of what was going on around them. So I just wanna share with you some humble pie this morning that I have made myself and confess that to you. I'm still not thoroughly convinced that that's true. But they, they're, they're insistent, and we trace back the time. I mean, we had like the whole investigative uh, reporters out there with the timeline, and I didn't notice, so that's my bad more than anybody else. So anyway, but we are talking this morning about relationships between fathers and sons. So right out of the gate, we need to recognize that this is something that's an incredibly sticky topic and a very touchy subject. When you think about, for many of the men here in this room, growing up, your relationship with your dad, and when you start really diving in and leaning in on that idea and how that shaped you, how that affected you, how that encouraged you, or how that discouraged you, you're going to get to a lot of emotions in a really deep place very quickly. Fathers and sons. There's a deep place as well for fathers and daughters. We recognize that, right? And we've seen the movies that stir some of those emotions up, like Father of the Bride and Father of the Bride too, right? Anybody there with me? I'm watching those. And at that scene, you know, I mean, many scenes in that movie, all my kids know because I start to like sniffle and like shimmy shake and they're all like looking at me and watching my reaction at those moments because they know there's something that stirs up with a father when thinking about his daughter. And Jesus is going to hit on this emotion this morning in the stories Jesus told as he references the prodigal son. Now I want us to think culturally for a moment on how much has been made of this whole idea of fathers and sons. Think about, I was just doing some thinking this week about movies and what a, what a common theme that is in movies. I think about movies like the Disney movie The Rookie. You remember that one with Dennis Quaid where he was just a high school coach and all of his guys on his team convinced him even at a very old age for a professional athlete to go out and end up making the major league over 40 years old. Remember that movie and after his first pitch and after all this stuff there was, there was media there and there was cameras and there was interviews and live TV but he just buzzed right by all of that if you remember the scene because who did he see leaning against the wall in the dark back corner but his father, his estranged father when they had such a broken relationship but his dad finally came to watch him and to cheer him on. 
Think about so many of these films. Talk about your Indiana Jones series, The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. You remember that one? How about um, even into the animated side of things? What about The Lion King? Remember that with Mufasa and Simba and how he always just wanted to remember his father and all those incredible scenes? What about Finding Nemo? Some of you are like, what is this guy doing? (laughs) Think about it. Think about our culture. Think about the films that really resonate and connect on a deep level. These are the ones that come to mind. Even more of the epic like battle type movies have some of these themes threaded throughout. Think about movies like Gladiator and Braveheart. There's elements in there about this whole approval that's needed from a father or a father figure. There's elements in there of avenging the death of a father and bringing him honor. You see that all the time. And that was a feeling and an emotion, a deep-rooted emotion that that these people 2,000 years ago were very familiar with as well. And so Jesus has gathered these people around and he's going to tell a story about a father and about a son. And you know the name of this story. Probably most likely in your copy of scriptures there's a little heading somewhere where it says the parable of the prodigal son. Right? That's not in scripture, but somewhere, came, somewhere somebody came along the line and said that's a good name for it. But what's really interesting, what I learned, that's really not probably the best name for it. Because when you think about the word prodigal, what comes to most of our minds is somebody that's rebellious, somebody that leaves home, somebody that gets in a big fight with their parents, somebody that steals, somebody that's immoral, somebody that's reckless, and somebody that's just got this air of uh, independence about them. So they run away and rebel, the prodigal. That's not what prodigal means. You know what prodigal really means? Check out this definition right here. The word prodigal means excessively generous or extravagantly wasteful. And you think about that in what we call this a prodigal son and it's been called that for 2,000 years and it doesn't really make sense because it really wasn't the prodigal son when you think about it. Maybe a better idea for this particular parable would be this, the prodigal God and the lost son. Because when you think about the idea of God and you take that adjective and put it on him, then it makes a whole lot more sense. Excessively generous and extravagantly wasteful with his grace and with his mercy. That describes the father figure in this more than it describes the son. There's a book that came out a few years ago called The Prodigal God, which a lot of these concepts were learned from. What we also tackle this morning is not just talking about the prodigal son, the lost son, who was the younger brother that most of the time the story focuses on. We want to also talk about the older brother because there are two equal players in this story. So to rewrite the caption in your Bible one final time, a true title for this should be the prodigal God and the two lost sons. That's the title of what we're tackling here this morning. If you want to just kind of cross that out and write that in. You're not changing scripture. It's okay. It just gives us a better picture of where we want to head this morning. So we've renamed it. And uh, now let's go ahead and, and dive into what this story is. Watch this creative video that reads this text for us as we dive in. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. So we divided the property between them. 
Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Who sent him to the fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You were always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Yeah, that's the one right there, right? That rings a bell for many of us here. We've, we've heard that before. We've read that before. And the audience that was listening to Jesus telling this parable, they were drawn in. They, they could recognize. They've had family experiences. They've had fathers. Many of them have sons, perhaps. The audience that was listening was hanging on every word to see what was it Jesus was really trying to say through this story. Well, we need to recognize right out of the gate the audience that Jesus was speaking to. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we see that there's two very specific groups. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him. So this is one group, the tax collectors and the sinners. Remember, the tax collectors were the Jewish people that were at one part, many of them, part of you know, this community. They had stepped away from that. They were working for the Roman government, and now they were charging their own family members, their own community, exorbitant amounts of money, taxes to the Roman government. They were cheating their own people, betraying their own people, and getting rich off it. They weren't ashamed about that. They had their booths right there, their tax collectors. They're the IRS of that day. That's who they were, and they weren't ashamed of it. And then you've got the sinners, tax collectors and sinners. And these are people, perhaps, that loved, loved, loved immorality and loved alcohol and loved cheating and were brash and bold and, and, and not ashamed about it at all. This is who I am. This is how I'm going to live. Deal with it. They were just known simply as the sinners here. 
That's one group of people. Then the other group of people that was listening to this story, in verse two it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this man eats with all of them. So you've got the ones that are outwardly rebellious and not ashamed about it. And then you've got the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember, the Pharisees are the religious people that believe not only in the first five books of the Bible, but also in the oral law and all the other things that all these different rabbis have set up saying, you need to do this to be holy. You need to do this to be holy. You need to do this to be holy. So they were the ones that were outwardly righteous, but inwardly they were proud and they were smug and they were self-righteous. You're gonna need to remember that because that'll come around all the way at the end. So this is the audience, they're all drawing in. What is Jesus really saying? Well, we've heard about the younger brother, right? Just remind you about a few things about him as we go through it. It says in verse 12, the younger brother said, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. You need to recognize here this morning what he did was extremely disrespectful. And that culture, just like today, the father would, would have like his wealth and, and it was a sign of honor when he finally passed on after the family would pay their respects. Then it was the father's wishes to divide all of his, all of his possession amongst his son as a gift of love and a way to spread uh, and continue to spread his authority and his influence. And what this younger son was basically saying is you are as good to me as dead as a matter of fact, I wish you were dead because what I'm really interested is not in a relationship and not you, but I'm interested in all of your things, in all of your stuff. It was a transactionary relationship, almost like a banker that he viewed as this is the giver of all the finances, so I'm gonna come and I don't have any relationships. I don't care if he's hurt by this request. I kind of want my stuff. Give it to me now. You need to recognize that the younger son was given one-third of the property. The older son is typically given a double portion at that time. So he had two-thirds. The younger son had one-third. And it says clearly that, you know, this is something that had to be sold right away. He wanted the cash for it. And you'll notice the, the heart of it in verse 12, second half. It says, and he, that is the father, divided his property between them and that word for property is not the greek word for land it's the greek word for life from where we get bios biosphere biology he divided his life you can see the heart behind it and how crucial this was for the father and the horror and the sadness in his heart and in his eyes but at the same time he wanted to give his son freedom and he didn't want to force him to do what was right so he said okay I'm going to sell it Jewish law at that time said that you could sell property before you were dead and do an inheritance but the property could not be occupied until the man actually died so a third of this property was gone it was cashed in but it no longer belonged to the man and now it was just vacant. Other people couldn't come in yet, so it was just empty land now. A daily reminder for this father of the son and what he had done. You know the story and perhaps you've been there. Thinking that something was great and a great investment, believing one thing, acting on one thing, and ending up getting fooled in the process. 
couple years ago, my wife, or in a situation like perhaps many of you were, where you're at, that, uh, you're at the airport, you're waiting to get on the plane, they make the, the announcement, and says, hey, we're, uh, we're overbooked, and if anybody wants to come up and get a voucher for $200, you're welcome to do that, whatever, whatever, whatever. Right? You've been there before? Like, huh, $200 a person, that's pretty good. What's going on later on today? Could we be late? I don't know, could we be late? And eh, let's not do it. Then they come on again, hey, we now have $300 voucher per person if you change and take a later flight. We made some cell phone calls. We arranged everything. All right, let's do it. We go up. We turn in our tickets. They give us the vouchers. We're sitting around for six hours. But it's okay, right? Because we've got $600 now to spend. And so we're all excited about this. And we finally get home. And we get, you know, a few months down the road, we're going to take a little trip together. So we start getting ready to, you know, cash in our vouchers. Many of you perhaps know where I'm going with this, with this story. So we go to, you know, delta.com or whatever it is, and okay, there's that flight. That's $275. That's $305. Sweet, let's do that. That'll be perfect, completely free, right? Anybody here work in the airline industry? That's not quite the economy they work on, is it? So I go in and we try and type in, and like, oh, if you have a voucher, you need to go and type in your voucher code over here at the front end of the transaction. So we go ahead and type that in, and sure enough, it brings us over here to this different site. And oh yeah, there's flights available for that same exact flight, but guess what? Those flights are all $600 each. Same seat, no voucher, $300. You got a voucher? Oh, it's $600. Does that make sense to anybody here? Uh, no, it didn't make sense either. I'm a pretty easygoing guy. I get along with most people. I don't get angry very easily. But I'm calling and I'm just being patient and being patient and explaining and explaining and explaining and they're not quite getting it. So finally I had to give a little illustration in my anger to show them what they were doing to me. So I said, let's say you go to Red Lobster and you order a lobster and it comes out and it's raw and it's actually still alive and it's flipping around and it knocks over hot, hot coffee right on, your, right on your lap and you get burned and you have a raw, you know, raw lobster and like you have a terrible experience. Manager comes out and says, it's okay, I'll give you a $50 gift card so you can come back next time. So then I come back the next time and I say I have a gift card. Then they give me a whole new menu and everything is three times as much as it was in the other menu. Does that make sense to you? I believe I even threw out the term, how do you sleep at night? I believe I said that. But no such luck. But we've all been there, right? Something that we think is a good idea. We think it's going to pan out a certain way. And then when push comes to shove, it is nothing like you thought it was going to be. And that's the case with the son, the younger son, the reckless, independent, going out, lots of friends. And sure, he proved to be a little prodigal there, right? He was generous with all his stuff. People came, took advantage. The money dried up. The friends dried up. Eventually, the water dried up. There was a famine in that land. And so now this Jewish boy that once grew up in this family situation with a, with a kind-hearted father finds himself at the end of his rope. Serving livestock, the lowest job that you could do in the grit, in the mire, in the manure, and serving pigs nonetheless. Swine, which again for a Jewish boy was blasphemy. They were unclean. They wouldn't eat pork. And so it's at that moment where he, it says in scripture, came to himself, verse 17. He came to his senses 
And that's an incredible word for us this morning because the root word is metanoia, which means to think again. He thought one thing and then he changed. He repented, same root word, came to his senses and said, I've got an idea. This isn't working out. This isn't panning out. I'm gonna go back to my father. I know my father's a kind man. I believe he'll take me back. And I know there's no way he's gonna take me back as his son. I've dishonored him. I've cashed in. I've done the worst thing possible. But maybe he'll take me as one of his hired men, one of his servants, one of his little minions, one of his little lackeys, just to be in the background, just so I could have a place to stay, stay and something to eat. And you know the story, and you could see the emotion, and you could tell how Jesus was drawing both sets of people in as he tells this tale. It says, it says uh, he rehearses in front of the pigs what his speech is going to be. You can just imagine that. And so finally he's ready. He's got the speech down in verse 20. It says he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. You catching that? The father was there looking for him every day, looking at that empty land that he can no longer occupy, looking for his son, praying for his son. And he sees that silhouette in the distance while he was still afar off. It says the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now you need to understand in that near Eastern culture, dignitaries don't run. Children run, teenagers run, patriarchs of families don't run. But you can just imagine him pulling his, his robe up and just tucking it in and running as fast as he could to embrace this son of his. Notice the son go ahead and starts out with his speech. He's got it ready. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He says it. He barely gets it all out. But the father in verse 22 doesn't even answer him. Don't you love that? Don't you love the different planes that they were on emotionally? Because what the son was probably expecting, of course, is like what most fathers would be. Oh, here you are. What's going on? Why'd you come back? How'd that pan out for you? Condescending, judgmental, justice, come back groveling. You better apologize. But instead, the prodigal father doesn't even acknowledge his request. <laughs> he says, bring quickly the best robe. That would have been the father's robe. He says, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, verse 23, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate and you see this prodigal God lavishing this undeserved grace upon the humble, outspoken, rebellious son. He was lost and now he's found. But remember, this is the parable of the two lost sons. Both equally lost. Both walled off from the love of the father. One by doing bad things and the other by doing good things. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, let's talk a little bit about the older son here in verse 25. It's important to recognize this morning that the older son in a Jewish family had an incredible amount of responsibility. 
they got double the portion, right? So they were also entrusted with a whole lot more. The older brother was responsible to be the mediator for the family, to do everything he could to make sure the father was respected. The older brother had responsibilities. Maybe you'll remember other places in scripture when somebody's brother died. It was the older brother's responsibility to take care of that wife, to take care of those children, to take care of the mother. The older son had a lot on his shoulders. But what we see here in this parable is that this older son was not active, was surprisingly silent as the family mediator when all of this happened a few months ago. We're not given any kind of timeline, but surely he was aware of what his brother wanted to do. He was aware of the for sale sign and everything else. But instead of intervening, instead of pulling his brother aside, instead of encouraging him and chasing after him, even while he was afar off, the older brother did nothing. Except for every day, I'm just going to keep on obeying. I'm just going to keep on working. I'm just going to keep on doing my duty. You see that the older brother was equally at fault as the younger. A couple of quick things about him that we want to say. Notice how angry he was. This fuming point when he finally saw what was going on. You see this fuming point in verse 28. It says he was angry. He refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. Again, disrespect. The father having to come out of the party. But entreated him, was begging him to come in, verse 29, but he answered, and here's where you get to catch a glimpse into his heart. He said to his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Notice the father doesn't argue with him there. He says, don't you see how good I've been? He was coming in from the field. He's probably always out in the field. Always doing what he should have done. Always doing what he thinks will earn him good things. It says, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. In other words, what we see from the older son is an expectation and an entitlement that says, because I'm doing this for you, God, you should be doing this stuff for me. Don't you see how I've obeyed you? Don't you see how I've never disobeyed you? Take a look at my moral record. There's nothing to be said of the relationship. What he's speaking of is a transaction that says, I do good things, I get God's stuff. And I'm here to tell you this morning that this is, this is a difficult message to preach because we're all familiar with the rebellious younger son. And maybe for some of you, you've got that as part of your story. You've got the younger son streak in you. You've got those weekends that you can't remember. You've got those couple of years at college that you wish you could forget. You got that first marriage that was just a disaster. But you came to yourself. You came to your senses. You had a changing and a repentance. And you came back and there was the father embracing you. And you were restored and there's a celebration. There's a feast. We know about the prodigal. But the scary thing is in a lot of churches in America, what we have is a lot of older sons. The moralists. We call them the religious lost. 
those that try and do a lot of good things to earn their way into the Father's favor so that he will then bless them with stuff. Think about these couple of illustrations. Again, Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God. It's just an incredible resource. But think about these three quick illustrations. Jesus told three stories in Luke 15. Think about these three. First one's factual. Several hundred years ago, there was a feud between a couple of, a couple of classical musicians and composers. You ever seen people in an orchestra fight? It's pretty crazy. This was a huge feud that was going on, and perhaps you remember the movie Amadeus 20, 30 years ago, remember that? Well, anyway, it was about these two composers, Amadeus Mozart and another one named Salieri. And these two composers were both incredible, incredibly gifted, and uh, actual, actually Salieri wrote a prayer to God early on, said, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and then be celebrated myself. I will stay away from women. I will stay away from liquor. Make me a great composer. And he was. He was incredible. But then, a few years after, there came another composer on the scene. And his name was Amadeus Mozart. He was incredible. He was getting more glory. He was writing more orchestrations. And he was getting more popular and among this Italian composer, he became embittered. As a matter of fact, he wrote down, God, from now on, we will be enemies, you and I. Because this Mozart is loose with women and rebellious, and yet he is more popular and talented than I. See the insidiousness in that? Think about this. There's a woman named uh, Elizabeth Elliot, and she wrote a modern-day parable. This didn't happen that we know of, but she wrote a modern-day parable about Jesus. And it said that he was with his disciples in the morning. He asked each of them to pick up a rock. Peter, being selfish perhaps, picked up the smallest one that he could so that he wouldn't get tired carrying it. Sure enough, they carried it all the way till lunchtime. And then Jesus performed a miracle and turned each of the rocks into bread. So then Peter just had this tiny little Thing of bread, whereas other ones had much bigger ones. So Jesus asked them again to pick up a rock. This time he picked up a huge boulder and started lumbering around, following Jesus all day long till dinner, excited about what was going to happen. And they got to the place where they were going to have dinner, and Jesus said, I want you to take your rocks and I want you to throw them in the water. And Peter looked up bewildered. What about, can't you make bread out of this? And Jesus said, were you carrying that rock for me or were you carrying it for you? And the last parable was one about a king and a peasant. The peasant who was just a poor farmer and um, he grew this giant carrot, the biggest one they had ever seen in the village. So he brought it to the king's feet and said, I want you to have this. This is a gift to you, my king. And the king was so moved that this peasant would give something, said, you seem to be an honorable man who knows how to work the land. I will give you a portion of the royal gardens for you to plant many, many more fruits and vegetables. Another villager heard about this and said, he got that huge track of land just for a carrot? I'm going to bring the king a stallion, thinking that he would get a whole herd of horses in exchange for that. So he brought his horse to the king, and the king said, I sense that you brought the stallion not for me, but for you. And you think about 
those three stories and you think about ourselves and you think about the mirror that says, whoa, well, how much do I, maybe even in an unspoken way, maybe not in a verbal way, but in my mind, how much am I trying to do good works to earn God's favor so that he will give me more things? As you think about this older brother mentality, I listed a couple of characteristics up here on the screen that I'd love for you to look at with us. How do you know if you really are an older brother? You look down often at others. There's a pride within you that causes you to look down. Number two, it's a critical, unforgiving spirit, a jealousy even. You can't see past your own pride. How about this one? There's no wonder, there's no awe, there's no intimacy with God. It's all just rote, routine, obligation. There's a lot of people that's like, well, I come to church, I even tithe, and I'll go on a mission trip, and I'll serve every now and again, and I'm doing all this stuff, but it is in an exchange, a cold, rote, exchange kind of mentality with the father that the older son said, if I do all these things, since I've done all these things, you owe me. It's a scary place to be. It's a scary place to be. Trusting in your own morality. Listing out all the things that you've done. These two are both equally lost. The son that was younger, outwardly bad, rebellious. Nobody had a question about what he was doing. But the older was also lost. But his problem was inward, a smug self-righteousness. Both equally lost. The reason that's important is I bring you back to the audience. Who did we have in the audience that we saw right there in the beginning of Luke 15? You had the tax collectors and the sinners, outwardly bad. And you had the Pharisees and the scribes, inwardly smug and self-righteous. Jesus knew that both of them were lost and was inviting both of them in to his prodigal, excessive, extravagantly wasteful love and grace. So let's think about the Father for a minute. As you look at this parable and as we begin to get ready to just kind of close things up here at the end of this story, you see the heart of the father. Not just in embracing the lost son who was younger, but inviting the older son in as well. Please come join in this celebration. Please come join in this feast. When we think about the heart of this father, at some levels you look at that, and I don't know if you look at this story and you're like, well, you know what? It just all seems too easy. I mean, how could that be? How could he not repay everything he's done? A third of his father's wealth, gone. And this, even this older son who still viewed his, his father as a, in a transaction, financial sense. And I mean, how could he just be so forgiving? It just seems way too simple. just want to remind you this morning that these words were coming out of the lips of Jesus Christ. 
at a moment in his three-year career that very shortly hereafter was going to head to Jerusalem to be crucified, to be betrayed, and to die. He was the guy telling the story. So is it easy? In one respect, it's free, but there certainly was a cost to it. I want you to think about the picture here of the lost son versus Jesus. The lost son who was the younger son was given a ring of authority. Jesus was stripped of his deity. The lost son was given a robe of recognition and honor. Jesus had his robe stripped off. The lost son felt the embrace of the father around his neck. Jesus had the father turn his face away. The lost son experienced feast and celebration and redemption. Jesus experienced sorrow and pain and isolation. But what he he wants us to recognize here this morning is Jesus accomplished and paid the cost of all of those things so that he could invite us into these things. Even for the son that was good and trusting in his own morality, Jesus says one thing to both of them and he says this, he says, all are invited, all are guilty and all Next slide. There we go. Everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved. And everyone is invited. Everyone is wrong. Doesn't matter how good you think you are. According to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. According to the book of Romans, chapter 3, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are wrong. No matter how good we think we are, we're never going to be up to God's standard. And if we could earn our way, if we could do good things, then it wouldn't be grace. If you could earn it, it wouldn't be mercy. Both are invited. He's got that invitation out there to all of us. So as we think about this prodigal God and these three stories, I want to just finally bring one thought to you this is the third parable in this chapter all of them involve something that's lost and something being found again and all of them involve inviting the friends in to rejoice and to feast and to celebrate and God here this morning is inviting us into that banquet no matter where you are He's got a banquet where there's dancing, where there's music, where there's celebration. Revelation chapter 19 talks about that. Jesus was a celebrating God, John chapter 2. He started out his ministry at a wedding, and he's going to end with us at the wedding feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, in glory, celebrating grace and mercy and prodigalness, freely bestowed. That's the Father's heart. And this morning... He's calling out to us no matter where you are. Maybe this morning, I wouldn't be surprised if there's maybe some that are right in the thick of where the younger son was, right in the middle of rebellion. You're the kind of people that would be counted as almost never going to church, right? But you're here this morning. 
And maybe God's wanting to use this opportunity to make you come to your senses and to return. And maybe you're here and you're one of the kinds of people that always finds themselves in church. Like the older brother, you're always doing the right thing. But the heart motivation has been a transaction, not a love relationship. God's inviting you to come and truly know him. Scripture's scary. It says in Matthew, many will come on that day and say, well, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Did we not do all these things? Jesus is going to say, well, I never knew you. Depart from me. Maybe for some, you've been the older brother for a really long time. And God's calling you to come and to repent and to enter into the banquet of joy. We're kind of left hanging at the end of this parable. We don't really know what happened. There's dissonance at the end. It ends with like, okay, now what? We don't know. But that's because Jesus was inviting the Pharisees and the scribes. We know what happened with the other outwardly rebellious ones. They could humble themselves and come. Of course, they'd be invited. But Jesus threw that question out. What's going to happen? And that's my question for you this morning. How are you going to respond to this great love? I'm just going to pray for us and then Jesse's going to sing a song that perfectly sums up what our heart's attitude should be here this morning. So Father, I just thank you so much for who you are. And God, I thank you that your grace is not so cheap that it could be earned by us. And God, I thank you so much that you reach out to every single one of us, no matter where we were with an open hand and you accepted and you embraced and you forgave no matter what the transgression was. And you restored us, God, and you made us holy and you brought us up as your sons and your daughters and you crowned us with righteousness. And for that, God, we just thank you. And Father, I just pray even this morning that you would just, that you would penetrate hearts and soften hearts soften minds and Lord let us be a people that embrace you in a love relationship for who you are not for what you give we love you God in your son's name we pray amen